0: Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it's time to talk tech. Our personal data is everywhere, but how should law enforcement be using that data? And what rules should they follow to gain access? In this episode, we'll be talking about policing in the age of big data and what that means for society. First, we'll hear about how police departments worldwide are embracing big data in a variety of ways, including using it to predict whether someone might commit a crime. Would you be comfortable having a score attached to you about your potential to commit a crime? I would not be. Next, we'll talk about a Supreme Court case that deals with law enforcement access to cell phone location data. As that data becomes more precise, should law enforcement be able to access information about our cell phone location without a warrant? or should that information be more fully protected under the Fourth Amendment? Police departments worldwide are embracing technology and exploring ways to leverage big data to help with law enforcement. Data-driven policing often comes with the promise of increased efficiency, reduced bias, and sometimes even the ability to predict future crimes. And while the potential sounds great, what are the costs of data-driven policing? In his new book, The Rise of Big Data Policing, today's guest, Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, takes a look at the latest data-fueled technologies being used by police departments and examines the impact these technologies are having on society. Welcome to Tech Talk, Andrew. Congratulations you. on your book. Thank you so much for having me. We have a beautiful copy here, which is available. First, tell, tell everyone where they should be getting this book, because they're going to be very excited after our podcast. Sure. 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 You should
1: support your local bookstores. I they love need that. need your help. You should support independent university presses. It's University Press Week today. And if you're a fan of big data, uh,
0: well, guess what? You can get it on Amazon and be (laughs) tracked for the rest of your life. That's great. I hear it's at Politics and Prose, which is actually my second favorite bookstore in Washington, D.C., only behind Kramer Books, just because it's closer to me. So it's easier to walk there. But they're both fantastic bookstores. So um, first, let's just talk about it. What are the most common ways the police departments are using big data right now? What are ones that people may not even know about? So right now in chicago illinois uh,
1: police are using an algorithm to predict the people most at risk of violence be they a perpetrator or a victim of a crime a uh score, a threat score, is wow. given to individuals. Anyone who's been arrested for the last four years in Chicago has a threat score by Chicago Police Department from 1 to 500. That score pops up on a dashboard so a police officer stops you on the street. They look you up. Literally a score is next to your name. An SSL score, a strategic subjects list score. And that score tells the police a bit about you and obviously shapes how they might interact with you, how they might uh, treat you. Maybe there might be more uh, deferential or more defensive, uh, and could that could lead to issues of user force? It can affect the Fourth Amendment. There are predictive policing, uh, programs in sixty uh, jurisdictions in America that focus on uh, places of crime. So they are predicting, mm. they are forecasting areas of crime, perhaps a heightened burglary area or a heightened car theft area. And that information comes from uh, past crime data, added in with like maybe the weather. If it rains, the bad guys don't like getting wet. If it, uh, you know, if it's payday on Friday, there might be an uptick in robbery. So they're taking, and they're crunching oh, all this information. Even like you know, big football games on Sunday. It's going actually impact crime patterns in a particular city. You have surveillance technologies that are uh, across America, right? You have uh, domain awareness systems, which is 9,000 linked cameras in downtown Manhattan that's able to track you as you go from block to block, place to place. There are automated license plate readers that track every car that goes into that area. And there are even automated prompts. So if someone drops a bag and walks away, the cameras will alert to it to determine if it's like a forgetful tourist or you know an wow. ill-tempered or ill- intentioned terrorist. And so you have these technologies of surveillance, a predictive analytics, and of course we have data mining, the ability to search and find crimes and patterns of data that we leave behind are changing how police do their jobs, who they're targeting, where they're going, and really,
0: uh, in many ways, uh, changes the role of police in America. Yeah, that's a lot of data out there about us now. So obviously, all you just all you described requires data. Um, And A lot of that data generated, processed by law enforcement. Um, One of the things that you did a really great job, I thought, of reminding readers of your book is that data is really people. Why does that matter so much in a law enforcement context? Because if you're one of those people in Chicago who has a heightened score, you might
1: actually get a knock on the door with a detective behind that door, maybe with a social worker and someone from the community, who's there to tell you that you've made this list. In fact, they have a letter, a custom notification letter that explains your past crime history and why they think you're there. On one hand, maybe you say that's a wonderful sort of public health approach to violence. On the other hand, it's a real form of social control. It's a form of surveillance to say, look, Usually it's a young man. You look, young man, you are uh, on the wrong path and we know it. We're the police and we're watching you. And so in one sense, it can be this kind of public health approach. But in many ways, it becomes sort of a virtual must wanted list. And so there are people mm-hmm. behind the data. There are people behind the uh, areas of predicted crime. Right. If you happen to be in an area of forecast crime and police are supposed to be in that area looking for burglars or car thieves or whatever, It is both natural and the consequence that officers will then see the area as a place of crime. And if you happen to be walking through that, it's going to impact how they treat you. It's going to impact the suspicion on the streets, and it's going to impact whether or not uh, maybe they stop you, frisk you, and all of the human dyna- dynamics and, and dimensions that go on. Yeah. Not to mention the privacy issues, right? If you're being Absolutely. surveilled as you walk down Lower Manhattan, like that's changing, like who you're going to associate with, it's changing what you might be doing. It's going to impact First Amendment freedoms, and it really can impact how we live our lives.
0: Yeah. And a lot of what you just described can be things very much out of that person's control. You know, so, so there's okay. certain ones which you had said if you had committed a crime before some people might be like okay that seems reasonable but the neighborhood you live in I mean these are things that aren't always in your control does some of this data translate across jurisdictions so say you're, in, you're you live in New York and you're visiting Chicago or a different city do law enforcement uh, or police departments communicate this data between each other? So
1: usually the law, the local law enforcement keeps the data relatively internal to itself. Okay. But of course, overlaying all of this are federal fusion centers, which were, mm-hmm. arose out of you know post 9-11 uh, to sort of coordinate some of these data collection policies. Um, we don't know much about the data in the fusion centers, except that they are collecting a lot of data and trying to do this sort of trans-jurisdictional uh, information sharing, because that was one of the concerns post 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, local policing is sticking to local police data. And, it, and there's so much data that they are they are collecting that's hard to share and the systems don't really talk. Um, but, you know, if you're talking about like a state like California, the jurisdictions are starting to share it because they're connecting with private companies like Palantir to start creating these sort of social network analyses mm. of large-scale uh, criminal syndicates because, of course, uh, people involved in criminal activity don't stay necessarily in one neighborhood. Right. They move, right? And so one of the useful pieces of uh, sort of this big data policing world is that uh, in states like California, where it's large enough that you can sort of track from city to city, they're starting to collect in different areas so that they can start creating a shared database for mm-hmm. these, you know,
0: larger crime groups and gangs. Interesting. So let's we touched on this a little bit. Talk to me a bit about the social biases that may be baked into some of this data. You know, we've talked about how data is really the people, but how are some of our social biases baked in? Because this is clearly where a lot of civil rights groups or um, civil liberties groups really, really are concerned, right, and so go, rightfully so. Right,
1: so go back right to Chicago, right? The way you make it onto this heat list is the following uh, inputs. Whether you've been arrested for a crime of violence, a weapons offense or a narcotics offense, whether you've been the victim of a crime, either a shooting Mm -hmm. or a violent offense, your age at your last arrest, the lower the age, the higher the risk, Uh, Mm -hmm. if you're younger, the higher risk. And then sort of the trend line. Is this going up or down? Are you like more involved in crime or less? Now, some of those inputs are arrests. And so if you're in a city like Chicago, which in 2017 had the Civil Rights Department, uh, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, go do an in-depth study of Chicago police practicing and found racial problems, you know, endemic, systemic, structural racial problems, racial bias all the way through and you know that arrests are discretionary, some of those inputs are going to be biased because the people behind it are going to have implicit or explicit bias, however you want to describe it. And so if your inputs are going to be biased, your outputs are going to be biased. And so right. we have to be aware of it. That doesn't necessarily delegitimize some use of predictive policing because, you know, the people getting shot in Chicago tend to be young people and young people of color. So there's, there is, you know, it's a complex issue, but we need to be aware of it because one of the real dangers of big data policing is that people use it to pretend that the bias doesn't exist. Like, don't worry. This is data-driven. This is objective. Right. Certainly we are heard following that. the data. We're not, you know, all that all too My human, algorithm is neutral, right? right? <laughs> that all too human policing concern you're worried about that caused, you know, riots in Ferguson and Baltimore. Don't worry. We've turned the page because we're now doing data-driven policing. And the problem is, if you don't analyze it carefully, you can allow some of this bias to seep in and then become sort of reified and justified as uh, part of the suspicion calculus that you have created and that's kind of why I wrote the book is because I said think all big data policing has a black data problem black in that it's a black box problem we can't see through it it's not transparent we don't know black is that it's racially encoded in the sense of a lot of these these uh, inputs do have you know old-fashioned traditional biases that we've always had in policing uh, certain communities and black because it's distorting like the law that we had came of age in like a small data world like the Supreme Court was deciding small data cases with individuals right. and with they could see they didn't know and they weren't contemplating what happens when you overlay that with a you know big data world so for example if you're that cop in chicago and you see someone on the street who has a 500 score which is like the highest score shouldn't that affect your suspicion i mean some computer just told you objectively in some non-objective way that this guy is more dangerous or more at risk than someone else so doesn't that impact how you treat that person doesn't it impact how you shape the suspicion in your head And we don't have a law that has really recognized that yet, and yet we're applying that law every day in courts and everywhere else.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just human nature. If you saw those scores, of course, you're going to respond to them in a certain way, and it's going to impact how you interact with that. So a lot of this, when you talk about predictive policing, it's based on kind of old crime theory, you know, that you can predict where things are. So are these theories accurate? You know, I'm sure you've done some research on that. Is that true? That you can kind of predict exactly where things are going to happen, how they're going to happen, and who's going to do it?
1: So if you take place-based predictive policing, right, you can predict, forecast a particular area that there will be an uptick in crime. The original like, social science theory and research behind that was actually pretty strong when you studied certain kinds of crimes. Burglaries, car thefts, okay. theft, thefts from auto. And the reason being is those kinds of crimes are sort of contagious. Um, if there is a burglary in one neighborhood, there tends to be burglaries right around that area, in part because maybe the same burglar just came back and realized there's some environmental vulnerability here that I can exploit, or maybe he told his buddies about it, and so other people went back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's pretty common to show across jurisdictions that certain crime is kind of viral, in part because there's some envir- environmental like weakness or vulnerability that criminals are, are exploiting. And that was really the theory behind the algorithm, which is the, the original PredPol algorithm, was a seismic aftershock algorithm, essentially. saying, look, okay. if you have a, a particular crime here, there will be these ripple effects, and you can trace them. And that tends to work, and there is social theory behind it. As you expand to other crimes, as you expand to other uh, uh, types of offenses, we don't have the data behind it. There's also social science data behind Um, The idea that you can predict people who are more at risk of being the victims of crime or being involved in crime. You know, in Chicago, the theory behind focused deterrence, which is kind of the underlying uh, idea behind some of the predictive policing technology, is that there are certain people who are shooting other people because they are in sort of adversarial relations. They are either in gangs that are rivals or in drug dealers that are rivals. And the reality is that if you shoot my buddy, I shoot you. So you can Mm -hmm. almost predict that there will be a shooting because you know there has to be some retaliatory action. And the theory goes, if you can intervene then, If you can stop that sort of reaction back and forth, you can reduce crime. And that makes sense, right? It kind of makes sense. And so the theory was, well, if we can identify inputs that sort of show who these people are and who are in these circles, we can reduce crime the proof in the actual empirical reality of, you know, the cities and and whether shootings are going up or down, it's pretty inconclusive. You know, there are times where it goes down. There are times it goes up. It's hard to, you know, crime has gone down nationally in most cities. It's gone up in Chicago and a few other cities. Uh, But, you know, in recent months, they say it's been going down, and they credit predictive policing
0: for that. So, you know, the jury's still out. Okay. So, I mean, obviously, let's go back to the scores a little bit. If I'm someone with a score you know whether i'm someone who is either being predicted to commit a crime or you know someone who predicted to have a crime committed against shouldn't you have some sc- sort of recourse as a citizen do you th- what what do you think there should be if if police departments are starting to use more data and even scoring citizens what sort you know, should you know that score in advance? Should you have the ability to look at that score? What are your thoughts on kind of that world of big data?
1: I think we need a conversation. I think that okay. we have done a really poor job of engaging citizens in the fact that any of this is happening. Part of writing the book was trying to get people engaged to see, maybe you should figure out and ask the chief, why are you doing this? What's the justification? Is it accurate? Is it audited? Are you sure? And if any of you have ever checked your credit scores, you know it can be wrong on so many occasions. How are you going to correct for... Uh, The errors here because we know every time we collect data there are mistakes. There's errors And if those errors have real liberty impacts, we really need to be careful. So let's figure out a process It's not that we still use credit scores even though we know they're flawed But we have a system where we can try to have some recourse uh, to make sure they're accurate and some people You know checking in in certain ways. So maybe that's a bad example because honestly who knows if your credit score is great or not Um, But we're not having that conversation now, right? Law enforcement is changing, policing is changing because of the impact of these big data technologies, and citizens are not uh, really engaged. I, I go around and I ask people, Here are two, here's a quiz, two things. One, do you know the surveillance technologies are being used in your hometown right now? Answer is no. Even the, the, the experts don't really know all the technologies. Right. And B, if you don't know, where would you go to find out? And that's another big gap. There's question. not even yeah. a place that you would go. And so in the book, I kind of propose these surveillance summits that every year there needs to be the one, at least one accountability mechanism where the chief of police and the mayor and the city council get up there and say, look, this is what we're paying you know, this vendor for. This is why we're spending your tax dollars. Instead of building more libraries or after school programs or giving officers raises, right, we are actually using this technology. And here's why we think it, it's right. And they may well be able to convince us that they're sure. right. But right now, we're not having that conversation. We're not engaging to say, hey, as a democracy, we should be doing it. You know, there have been organizations, including this wonderful organization, the ACLU and EFF, that have begun some of the democratizing process, right? Saying, like, maybe we need to get involved. Maybe we need to have these city council meetings where the discussion of technology and surveillance and democracy is all at the forefront. Uh, because the a way to engage citizens, citizens in the fact that their relationship with government and policing is
0: changing, and they should have a say in that. I would agree with that 100%. Um, So let's now pivot a little bit to, um, I thought one of the more interesting insights in your book was how there is a potential positive here. A lot of us have concerns, you know, and certainly we've talked on the broader positives for policing. But in terms of police accountability, how can data help with police accountability and kind of, as you put it, turn the tables a little bit? Right. So there's a chapter in the book about blue data. And I I posit that what if you turn this
1: architecture of surveillance we've built uh, for citizens on the police, right? The same body cameras that are pointing out to the world are also monitoring what police do. The same domain awareness system that's monitoring citizens is actually watching the police in the same camera angles, right? Right. Uh, The same predictive analytics that can predict people who are involved or would be involved in crime can predict officers who might be involved in incidents of violence or, or, or misconduct. Uh, And we can use those same technologies to improve police accountability and police training. And some of this has been done. There are a bunch of data scientists out of Chicago who went to Charlotte Mecklenburg's police department, and they're actually given wonderful access to uh, all the different variables. They weren't sure what they were going to find. they were trying to look to see, could they find uh, inputs that that created sort of situations of conflict, like be it a, a violent action or things that police might get disciplined for. And one of the things they found was that officers who responded to a traumatic scene maybe it was like a child's death or a suicide in the next shift had a much higher elevated likelihood of being involved in a violent crime or Mm -hmm. a violent incident and the reason why being of course is they're human beings and they just process this trauma that they saw and they're not given great services to process it and so when asked to deal with a stressful situation the next time around they overreact it's it's very typical PTSD a lot of officers have undiagnosed PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder and the idea was you know Maybe we don't send that guy to the next scene, right?
0: Right. They also learned with domestic violence.
1: If they only sent two officers to a domestic violence call, it tended to sort of be an, an explosion of additional rage. But if they sent like six officers or more, there really wasn't a conflict because the usually the man who was upset about whatever was going on didn't put up a fuss with that kind of show of force. So they would reduce violence by
0: sort of like data mining their own uh, uh, um, um, information. That is interesting. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to let you go now. But this is a great book. uh, The Rise of Big Data Policing. Any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, so there's one last piece
1: that I think people need to to pay attention. Like big data policing is based on predictive analytics that uh, identify risk, be it places or people. But the solution doesn't actually have to be a policing remedy. You can actually divorce the value of the predictive analyst to identify a particular block that might have crime or a particular person who might be involved in crime. But the answer doesn't mean like put a police car in that block or send a police officer to their door. It might be like, fix up that block. Let's get the city services in there to do that. Or let's give, give the social services, the educational services, the job services to that individual. It doesn't have to require a policing remedy. So we have, because of the way we fund it, the way the money has come through, the vendors and the rest, we've kind of connected predictive policing with policing. But maybe predictive policing is just as good without the policing part of it if you can take the predictive analytics and use it to solve the underlying social problems that we know exist in the world and that can be fixed and identified with these kinds
0: of technologies. I think that's a great thought to leave it on. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful book. Pick it up at your local bookstore or on Amazon. Thank you so much for joining us on CDT's Tech Talk, Andrew. Thank you so much. On November 29th, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in Carpenter v. U.S., one of the most important technology policy cases pending at the court this year. The justices are expected to decide whether the Fourth Amendment permits the compelled, warrantless disclosure of increasingly precise and revealing cell phone location information. Think about it, no warrant for information about everywhere you go with your cell phone. That's, well, probably everywhere. CDT filed a brief in the case and our always charming general counsel, Lisa Hayes, she has many other titles as well, she's here to talk (laughs) about that brief and why this case matters. Welcome Lisa.
2: Thanks Brian, it's good to be here.
0: So first, can you give us a background on this case?
2: Sure. So Timothy Carpenter was identified as a suspect for organizing a series of armed robberies in the Detroit area, and the FBI got 127 days of his historical cell phone wow. location records. Yeah, that's about that's a lot of days. Four months of records without a warrant. So thanks to all of the call detail records, they were able to get his cell phone within a half mile to two miles of all of the robberies at the time that the robberies were occurring. And to make a very long story short, he was convicted and sentenced to 116 years in prison. And the question is whether or not, if they had probable cause to believe that Timothy Carpenter had committed these robberies, they should have had to get a warrant before getting his cell phone information.
0: So that's the crux of what the Supreme Court then will decide, whether a warrant is required for that sort of information, correct?
2: That is one of what I would argue are okay. two cruxes in case. All right, the case. give me the other crux. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one argument is is before the court is whether or not you need a warrant. Yep. The other issue is a frankly antiquated legal theory called the third-party doctrine and whether the third-party doctrine is really relevant in today's digital age. And that's where a lot of CDT's brief focused our energy.
0: So what the heck does that mean?
2: Okay, so back in 1976, the court said it was okay to get bank records without a subpoena. And the idea was that you were entrusting this information to the bank, who clearly was a third party. You were not sticking the money under your bed. You were not burying it in your backyard. And so you were able to get access to those records without a warrant. And then it was extended to telephone records a couple years Mm. later. And the idea being, if you entrust your information to a third party, it can't really be that private. The key is, in the 1970s, if you had personal information, odds are good you were storing that in your house. If you had photographs, what books and magazines you were reading, uh, what your health records were, all that information would be contained offline (laughs) in paper format somewhere in your home, and the police would need to go get a warrant to get that information. What has happened over time is the third-party doctrine has been stretched to encompass everything that's held by a third party. So this is a case where the court is going to look at the third party doctrine and see if it really should apply to things that you're trusting, say, to the cloud.
0: Uh, Interesting. Um, So cell phone location data, how precise is it? Because that, I mean, that's like a virtual, in my world, it seems like a virtual tracking beacon if someone can just like identify, you said, within half mile to a few blocks.
2: Ooh, it or. can get quite a bit closer than that these oh, yeah? days. So, and the interesting part of it is that this information is automatically conveyed. Your cell phone is constantly pinging the towers. It is not similar to, to the case back in the 1970s where there was actually telephone operators mm. who were helping to make all of these exchanges. But right now you can get remarkably precise information about a person's where being based on their cell phone through a variety of technologies. And so I hope that the court doesn't focus solely on the cell phone towers in this case, because new technologies are coming all the time with micro cell sites. And and we have a lengthy explanation on this in, in the brief. But let's build a rule and a precedent that will last no matter where the technology leads us in the years ahead, because the technology we have today is pretty different from the technology we'll have in five years, but yes, very precise.
0: So what exactly do you hope the court does then?
2: We hope that the court says that you must get a warrant to get information, uh, either from cell phone records. And we're hoping that it's an opportunity for the court to reconsider the third party doctrine in this case. OK,
0: that makes sense. Is there any, you know, obviously the case has not been argued. That happens on November 29th. But are there any prior decisions you've seen from this court that might suggest, do you know how they might go, predict but a little?
2: It's important to remember that it's a new court. Uh, sure last is. year was a little bit of a slow year, quite candidly, because the court was down one justice uh, after Justice Scalia's death. Interestingly, the case that I think has a lot of precedential value uh, for the Carpenter decision is U.S. v. Jones. Ironically, Justice Scalia was in the majority in that case and wrote the opinion. <laughs> and that's a case where the court recognized that the new types of information that we contain in our cell phone are private um, materials that in historic times would have been stored under your bed at home. But now you're keeping on the phone with you everywhere you go. Justice Scalia has been replaced by Justice Gorsuch. And that will definitely have an impact in how the court breaks down on this case. Um, and I don't know uh, how that will play out yet.
0: A lot to learn about the Supreme Court, definitely. And Lisa is, of course, a Supreme Court uh, nerd slash expert, <laughs> um, however you want to term it. But uh, aficionado, perhaps. Enough, um right. Fangirl. There you go. So regardless of the outcome, there's a lot of folks who are saying maybe Congress should act on this. Uh, Is that something that you and CDT think? Um, I know that Senator Wyden has a bill out there. I think it's called the GPS Act or something like that. Close.
2: In fact, Congress has been invited to act by some of the appellate courts who've heard this case. And they've said, you know, if, if you think you should need a warrant for this information instead of relying on the third party doctrine, excellent. Have Congress pass a law that says you need to have a warrant for this type of information. CDT thinks that's a very reasonable standard. We're certainly not pro-crime. We are pro-probable cause. Sure. Um, rather than having unlimited government surveillance, we think if you're suspected of a crime and there's information supporting that, you simply obtain a warrant using the probable cause standard and, uh, and you're able to obtain the information.
0: That makes sense to me. Uh, So will you be one of the folks in line on the 29th to hear the case live at the Supreme Court?
2: Only if I find a babysitter. So, <laughs> watch this space. <laughs> well,
0: thank you so much for joining Tech Talk, Lisa. Thank you, Brian. And for those who want to know more about this case, CDT is hosting an event that will go more in depth on it on Tuesday, November 28th. That's the day before uh, the Supreme Court will hear arguments. And Senator Ron Wyden will actually be our featured speaker there. If you're interested, check out the event details at CDT.org under events. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. Again, if you'd like to hear more about U.S. v. Carpenter, check out CDT's event page at CDT.org for all the details on our event with Senator Wyden. I'm Brian Wozolowski. Thanks so much for listening.